TorahCafe.com. I want to understand the meaning of these very precise words, tracht gut, wird sein gut, think good, it will be good. Think good and will be good, it's not, as some might assume, just a way of saying, I don't know, hope for the best, or stay positive, or as my father often endearingly said to different people, keep the faith, baby. <laughs> you see, hope for the best implies that you could still expect the worst. Stay positive or even keep the faith are essentially words of general active encouragement. But think good, and it will be good, is a profound quote from the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. It is a categorical statement. It is a guarantee, if you like, that if you think good, then it will be good. How can one be so sure? What indeed is the guarantee? Is there logic to the statement, or is it just, again, really essentially just a declaration of faith? So let's consider. There are essentially, as we all know and can relate to, three dimensions to our reality. There is the way we think, there are the words we speak, and there are the actions which we commit. And whilst we can all understand how what we say and certainly what we do can make a very real difference to our reality, what perhaps we're a little bit less in tune to or we don't as readily appreciate is how in actual fact the same applies in the context of the impact of our thinking process as well. I'd like you to think about this for a moment. Think about the Jewish calendar. There are two months in particular on the Jewish calendar and in which halacha, Jewish law, gives us particular directive about how we are to conduct ourselves in those particular months. There is the Hebrew month of Adar, which constitutes the happiest time, if you like, on the Jewish calendar because of the great salvation that occurred on the festival of Purim. Halacha gives us a clear directive. Mishinichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha. When the month of Adar comes in, then we are expected and responsible to increase in joy. In contrast to that, we have the Hebrew month of Av, when we are instructed, Mishinichnas Av Mimaatim Besimcha, to diminish in joy. And this because, of course, of the saddest day of the Jewish calendar, which is the ninth above the day in which our temples were destroyed and the exiles that we endured as a result. But what is especially noteworthy is that even as these two dates are diametric opposites, the Talmud gives us very clear directive in linking them together. Kishem, just as in the month of Av one is required to diminish in joy, so too in the month of Adar, one is responsible to increase in joy. What does one thing have to do with the other? What is the underlying rationale for this otherwise seemingly incongruous link? Av and Adar, just like this, so too that? On one level, I suppose, what we have to consider is how in the month of Adar, we are being instructed not to be joyous, but to increase in joy. Similarly, in the month of Av, we are being told not to be sad, but simply to diminish in joy. In other words, joy itself is the default position regardless. That's the starting point. You have to always strive to maintain a happy disposition. 
You have to always be thinking good. That's a given. It's just a question of how to manage or balance the extent owing to certain circumstances. In light of the uniqueness of the month of Adar, you have, to, you have the added obligation of increasing in that joy, even more so in that endeavor. And in the month of Av, because of the tragic occurrences, we have to decrease somewhat. So they are, yes, deliberately linked to remind us that as much as the dates per se may be mutually exclusive, on the one hand, the principle of joy itself, the basic happiness, the tracht gut, the positive disposition, that remains a constant regardless. That's on one level. But then there's an altogether different point to consider, maybe a little bit of a, a deeper link between these two very different periods in time as it relates to our own theme. You know, Purim was, after all, a one-off event. It happened a little more than, I don't know, roughly about 2,400 or so years ago. And yet it reflects and it has effects that reverberate till present day, well beyond the very commemoration of the day itself such that Jewish law even dictates and says that if you're going to be dealing with certain crises, be they, for example, matters of legal or medical concern, then an ideal time to do so would be at any point throughout the month of Adar. Why? Is it some kind of good luck charm? I mean, does the month itself have some kind of special aura because of the events of a particular day? Even more troublesome is when we think about the month of Av, the ninth of Av in particular, in historical context. It is a day that began all the way at the beginning of time in Jewish history, when the spies had entered into the land of Israel at the behest of the people, and they returned with negative reports. And of course, we know the story. We know how the people respond negatively. And accordingly, they cry out to Moshe, lamenting their fate. And in response, God decrees that this generation was not worthy of his precious promised land and that they would then ultimately all die out over the course of the next 38 or so years wandering throughout the desert. You'd think that was punishment enough. And yet the Talmud tells us that because the Jews cried on that night, in essence, for no reason, God said, I will yet give you reason to cry in future generations. And so we find, over the next 3,000 or so years, ineffable events that either begun or culminated on the 9th of Av. In 1312 BCE, that's when the episode of the spies occurred. In 421, on the very same night, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple during which 100,000 Jews died and the rest were exiled. In 70 of the common era, Titus led the Romans into Jerusalem and on the very same night destroyed the second temple. Again, many Jews died. Countless others were sold into slavery and over a million were exiled. In 132 CE, on the 9th of Av, the massacre of Betar took place. In 1095, on the 9th of Av, Pope Urban II declared the First Crusade, bringing death and destruction to thousands of Jews. In 1492, on the 9th of Av, the Spanish Inquisition culminated with the expulsion of the Jews. All this 
because the Jews cried on that all-original night for nothing? And so God says, you cry for no reason, I will yet give you reason to cry. Is that justice? Is that a measured response? Does the punishment fit the crime? Is that the consideration with which we declare God as Erech HaPayim Chesed, slow to anger, filled with compassion? Where's the compassion in that? Those who pay close attention to wording of Torah will note that when God analyzes, as it were, the consequences of the saga with the spies, he says to Moshe, and this congregation rebelled against me, lahotzi diba al haaretz, to speak about the land. And Rashi, the commentator par excellence, makes a curious remark about this word, diba, and suggests that it implies direct speech, says Rashi, which can go either way, whether good or bad. What's he trying to tell us? The point is this. There are dates and days and times which can go either way. There are circumstances that we confront daily, whether in our home life, whether in our workplace, or wherever else, that can go either way. But we are the makers of our own reality. We are the architects of our own destiny. And it is the precise mindset that makes all the difference. It's not that all the negative and all the tragic experiences endured by the Jews throughout the ages on the ninth above that were some protracted punishment as a result of that all-initial event with the spies. It's that our attitude, our crying, our lack of faith that attributed extreme negativity to the day, resulting in a domino effect enabling other destructive events to occur on the same day through the ages. At the precise moment, which would have marked the culmination of our exodus from Egypt as we stood on the threshold of Israel that would have resulted in us all remaining permanently in the Holy Land, at that moment, to despair, to lose heart, to think negatively, attributes extreme negative energy to that day that kind of got stuck there and keeps regurgitating itself at different intervals throughout the course of history. Because man is attached to the object of his speech and thought. If you speak negative or you think negative, you become mired in negativity. You become attached to the negative, and God forbid negativity can then cleave to you. To the flip side, of course, if you think positive, then you will be attaching your soul to divine benevolence, which in turn will encompass you and will engender goodness and compassion in your life. That is why, precisely why, paradoxically, the ninth above, as much as it is a day of mourning, is also a day in which we do not recite the Tachanun, the usual penitence prayer that we might otherwise recite on any given day, because again, as the Talmud notes, it is the very day in which the soul of Mashiach was created. It is a day that will become the greatest celebration. It could have happened, and that all original first given opportunity, but it is precisely because of our attitudes and our dispositions that altered the course of history. 
but we can still reverse the trend. Hence, Hasidism changes the emphasis on the aforementioned phrase and says, not mishinichnas of mima'atin besimcha, when the month of Av comes in, do we diminish in joy. But as the Baal Shem Tov once said, mishinichnas of, when the month of Av comes in, mima'atin, you can diminish the negativity associated with the month. How? Besimcha by redressing your own thinking process, by being more joyful, by changing your whole mindset. And therefore, in a very similar vein, the positive aura that is generated through the extreme joy of Purim, yes, it affects the entire month. The celebration of the day itself yields a certain kind of positive energy throughout all the days of the month, necessitating us to be in a more joyous mood as a result. And indeed, when we are in that happier, better frame of mind, that impacts on all dimensions of our reality such that it is then the ideal time in which other matters of general concern, such as medical, legal, or what have you, should be dealt with. Because we are in that better frame of mind, then we're guaranteed of a far better result. Because trachtgut betzeingut. Here's a further similar observation to be made. If I was to ask you what is the, not saddest, but most serious day of the Jewish year, your answer would be Yom Kippur, which we'll be celebrating again soon enough. But otherwise, strangely referred to in the Torah as Yom Kippurim, which translates a day like Purim. Again, it begs clarity. One is marked through deliberate eating and drinking to commemorate the celebration. The other involves us being prohibited from eating and drinking to underscore the solemnity of the day. But when you think about the Purim story in context, what was it? It was a time in history that certainly necessitated a tremendous amount of positive thinking a tremendous amount of positive attitude, tremendous faith in God's providence, because it wasn't openly manifest, was it? At that time, you had to really believe that the series of supposed coincidences unfolding was really God weaving the tapestry of an ultimate redemption. Yom Kippur, on the other hand, came about how? In the first instance, on account of the Jews' lack of faith, their negative mindset, they did not believe that Moshe was going to return after 40 days. And so they made a golden calf as a result. And only later on account of Moshe beseeching from on high were the Jews then spared and a second set of tablets were presented on what was then a day of atonement which became enshrined for all eternity. So here again, the connection between these two seemingly opposite events encapsulates the same theme. How Judaism's recipe for life is to discard with negative thinking. Never, ever basking despairingly in your misdeeds, but always joyously connecting with a positive mindset to your Father in heaven. And the point is this. There are Adar moments in our lives, and there can, chas v'shalom, be of moments in our lives. There are Purim periods in our life existence, just as there may be Yom Kippur intervals. But when you think positive, 
Again, you are attaching your soul to divine benevolence, which will in turn encompass you, engendering goodness and compassion in your life. Your life is a grindstone, but whether it grinds you down or polishes you up depends on you and the level and the extent of your thinking process. Or, as a grandfather once explained to his grandson sometime soon after the war, I feel as though I have two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is full of anger, upset, despair, negativity. The other is full of compassion, strength, and hope. And the grandson looked to his grandfather endearingly and said, Zayda, which wolf is going to win the fight in your heart? And the grandfather answered simply, the one that I feed. As my father always taught me, already from a young age, quoting from the Balshemtov and the Magid, how they teach us the meaning of the Pasuk, Bahaboteach Bahashem Chesed Yisavavenu. When someone strengthens trust in God, that itself causes that divine compassion will encompass that person. Because you are where you and your thoughts are. And that therefore, when you are in that positive mindset, that in and of itself will generate divine grace and loving kindness. Not just good things that you may well be deserving of, but sometimes even beyond that, even grace which may not have been in the cards, in other words, was not necessarily supposed to happen, but that will also be drawn forth, and that will also come about just because we believe and trust that it will happen. And this, as opposed to living in fear and trepidation and anxiety of all kinds of negative things, whereby the same type of argument, this Fear and those kinds of thoughts may heaven forfend, we should never know, bring about those negative things. You have to think positively. You have to speak positively. Few things in life are more powerful than a positive perspective because it affects everything we do. Good thoughts affect our reality much more than we realize. You may not believe it to be true, and even if you do, Sometimes you can lose perspective. Sometimes you can forget, especially when life might throw at you its worst curveballs. It's hard to stay positive when the world appears to be falling apart at the seam. But that is precisely the moment when optimism is most vital because our perceptions, to a large extent, determine our reality. Consider this story. There were two well-known Hasidic brothers of the 18th century. There was Rabbi Zusha of Anapol, and there was his half-brother, of Elimelech of Lezhensk. And they once witnessed a Jew who was being beaten up by a police officer. So they did what any good Hasid would do. They went to the Jew's defense, and they knocked over the police officer. Of course, the end result of that is that they were taken and they were thrown into prison. And as they're there in prison, Rabbi Zusha looks over at his brother, Rabbi Elimelech, and he sees how he's rather sad and depressed. And he says to him, why are you looking here so sad and so glum? And he says, I'll tell you why. Look, here in the middle of the cell, amongst all these drunks and boors, there is a latrine, like a bathroom, situated right there in the middle of the prison. He says, yeah, and? He says, well, now we can't daven. 
there's Mincha, there's Mariv. I can't do that in front of the Lutrin. So Rav looked to him and said to him, let me ask you something. There is a Jewish law that says that you're not allowed to doven when you are within a certain proximity to something disgusting, something impure. Here you are in that situation. When before did you have an opportunity to keep that Jewish law that you can't daven because you are in proximity to that kind of situation? And Rebbe Melech heard this, and as soon as he heard this, he started to sing. He started to dance. He grabbed Rabbi Zusha, and together they started to dance around the latrine. And all the other drunken boars sitting there in the same cell in the bullpen over there, taking the scene. So they join in the singing and the dancing too. And pretty soon you've got this huge circle dancing around. And the prison guard hears all the commotion, comes down and says, what's going on? Why are you singing? What's the celebration? So Rabbi Melech and Rabbi Zusha, they're caught up in their ecstasy. They don't even speak. They're just pointing to the latrine as they're dancing. And so all the other drunken boars, monkey see, monkey do, right? So they all start dancing around, and they're all pointing to the latrine as they're dancing. And the police guard says, aha, the latrine, yeah? I'll teach you. He picks it up, and he takes it out of the prison cell. (laughs) That is the meaning of our sages. Simcha, paretz, geder, joy can penetrate and remove all obstacles. Some armies had a custom of singing a victory song as they went to war. Why? They hadn't begun the battle. Because they're going with an absolute confidence that they will win. And that conviction in itself lifts their morale and infuses the soldiers with a surety of victory, and then, then you fight altogether different. There is a lovely psalm that we recite and we'll be reciting tomorrow on Shabbos and Jewish festivals, a song dedicated to the sacred city of Jerusalem. It was composed by King David and sung by our ancestors as they went up in pilgrimage to the Holy Temple. And the opening verse reads, I was happy, King David says, whenever people said to me, let us go and journey to the house of God. What exactly did King David mean by this? First of all, what's the significance of other people saying that to King David? What's their going to the house of God have to do with him? Second of all, whatever is meant by it, why should that make him happy? And perhaps most significant, what house of God? The house of God, the temple, wasn't built yet in King David's times. So what is he referring to? One famous 13th century tract, the Yalkut Shimoni, offers the following explanation. He says, King David was referring to the temple, yes. But as to why people made reference to the temple that had not yet been built, he explains, is in reference to mean-spirited people who mockingly said, David, let's go to the house of God. They knew how much King David wanted to build the temple, but that God had denied him that opportunity because he was, after all, a man of war, and he reserved that project instead for his son, King Solomon, when he was to assume the throne. So why is King David happy? You would expect him to be hurt, to be upset. People are mocking him. They're taunting him with what disturbs him most. And yet, far from being angry, King David says, So machti, I'm happy. Because whatever their malicious intent, at least the temple is on their minds. 
which reflects, if nothing else, a subconscious yearning for it to be built. And that in itself will ensure that it gets built. So that instinctive response, well, the instinctive response would have been a negative one. As we all tend to react when someone might taunt us, it exposes a wound in our heart. But King David, he looked at the silver lining. He looked beneath the superficial exterior of the concern at hand. He looked at the bigger picture. He looked at the implicit blessing within. Same reality, completely different perspective. You know, emotions are not simply what we feel. We don't choose our likes and dislikes, our resentments and our joys. They suddenly catch us and they hold us hopeless in their grip. So we conclude that we cannot help feeling that way. I can't help the way I feel. I'm at the mercy of external events that cause me to feel this way. But what King David is demonstrating ever so forcefully is that Judaism rejects that notion. What we feel is largely determined by how we think, how we choose to interpret external events, and how we are going to, yes, choose to react to them. That is something that is completely and utterly under our own control. That's revolutionary. Maybe it flies in the face of a number of psychoanalysts, but it's fundamental to Jewish belief. Now let me stress, it doesn't mean that we distort our thinking process to the extent that if, God forbid, something negative happens, we just ignore that reality. But rather, we choose, even then, the most positive response, the most positive path within the spectrum of responsible reactions. So you'll say to me, positive path, even in adversity? Isn't that delusional? Positive thinking, even in the face of disaster, isn't that absurd? Where's the positive and any kind of negative that we know that we experience? How could you hope to find a positive path? Isn't that a grossly irresponsible reaction? But we all know a fundamental rule in Judaism is that we make a blessing over the adversity in our lives just as we offer thanks for the goodness. When we offer thanks for goodness, we say, Baruch HaToyv He was good and does good. But when we give thanks, as it were, to God for the negative, it's a distinctly different blessing. We're not in a state of denial. We recognize this to be bad, to be tragic. We say the words, Baruch Dayan HaEmes. Blessed be the true judge. We still acknowledge the hand of God in it nonetheless. But we also believe that if God got you to it, God is going to get you through it. Sure, you can panic in the face of it. You can despair, and frankly, who would blame you? You'd have every right to feel that way. But that, that's only going to compound the tragedy. Then you become a victim of that twist of fate. And if you believe that there is a master plan, then you have to somehow seek out the opportunities, however far-fetched they may seem and you look somehow to build from the experience. You know, there was one famous Jew who lived at number 20 Maresfield Gardens in Swiss Cottage, London, who was sitting and writing one of his more popular works, 
Moses and monotheism in 1939. Several thousand miles away, the chief rabbi of Vienna was being forced to get down and scrub the streets. And more than 500 Jews took their own lives rather than falling into the hands of the barbaric Nazis. And all during that while, Sigmund Freud was sitting in London trying to prove that Moses was a non-believer. Maybe, maybe that was his way of coping with the looming crisis and ultimate ineffable events as they were transpiring in Europe. Maybe if he could downplay Moses in Jewish history, he could live better with himself. If I can do a little bit of Freudian analysis, I would say that when we talk over here about the fact that there is a little bit of Moses inside every single one of us, what we really mean is that there is this incredible reservoir of faith that is unique to every individual, that we all have incredible courage and conviction, which if only we want to, we can tap into to cope with whatever life is going to throw our way, however formidable the challenge. Freud, he didn't want to know. He even refused to allow his wife, who was from a rabbinic family, to light candles on a Friday night. If you remove faith from the equation, yes, hey, then we're quirks of fate. Then we're left up to the random happenings of life. It's really just another way of going into some kind of denial. So the calamity happens, and there's nothing to be gleaned from it. Even as he may have emerged from the war unscathed, he's on balance so much weaker for that approach. But contrast that with another individual, Viktor Frankl, a man who gave Freud a real one for his money, equally renowned for his own contribution to psychiatry. His whole school of philosophy was based on his own real experiences in the concentration camps. He went around giving people the will to live, helping them find the glimmer of hope in their lives. He would remind one person of the fact that they have family still living in Canada. They should strive to live to see. Another, he would encourage to be able to emerge from the camps and write a book about his experience or her experience. It was due to his own and other people suffering in these camps that he came to his hallmark conclusion that even in the most absurd, painful, and dehumanized situation, life has potential meaning and that therefore you can pick up the pieces from there. And a hallmark of his now famous logotherapy is that even if a prisoner felt that he could no longer endure the realities of camp life, even if that book that one was being encouraged to envisage, or that relative in Canada that one was being encouraged to think about, even if they held no appeal, there was always a way out through, if you like, the mental life, an invaluable opportunity to dwell in the spiritual domain, the one area that the SS were, ever, were always unable to destroy. Spiritual life strengthened the prisoner, helped him adapt, and thereby improved his chances of survival. And that's exactly where positive thinking comes into play, even in the darkest pockets of our universe. In fact, here's a compelling story as it happened to Frankel himself. In 1990, he was delivering a keynote address to thousands in Anaheim, California. And he was relaying to them one very real experience, well, all of his experiences in the war, whilst he was imprisoned in a Nazi death camp, how he nearly died many times, but one day in particular, which he relayed to them, was during a winter in Poland and he was being led on one of the marches to a work camp. He's dressed in thin clothing. He has no socks. 
He has holes in his shoes. He's ill with malnutrition. He starts to cough. The cough is so severe that he falls to his knees and the Nazi guard is standing over him, beating him with a stick and telling him that unless he gets up right now, he's going to kill him on the spot. And he himself had vivid recollections of that only happening over the course of the many weeks prior to others. And there, lying on the ground, he started to imagine. He started to imagine that he was standing at a lectern in post-war Vienna and that he was giving a lecture on the psychology of death camps. And he had an audience in his imagination of several hundred that are sitting there that are wrapped with attention. And that lecture is one that he had been working on the whole time that he had been in the death camp. And he spoke about how some people seem to survive the experience better than others, psychologically and emotionally. And it was a brilliant lecture. And it's all taking place in his mind's eye. He's no longer lying there coughing, debilitated in that field, he's actually somewhere else. And he's telling his imaginary audience in his mind's eye about the day that he was lying in the field and how he was being beaten, certain that he didn't have the strength to get up. But somehow he found the strength, he found the courage to pick himself up. And he's telling his audience, I started to envisage myself having a lecture, giving a lecture. And that in itself gave me the strength to pick myself up. Again, that's all going on in his imagination. But as it's going on in his imagination, he found himself in the very real present, lifting himself off the floor and continuing in the march and continuing living in the imagination, giving that lecture to all those people post-war until he finally came back later to his bunk and he collapsed, imagining himself finishing this brilliant speech and receiving a standing ovation. And as he's telling this, now in 1992, his audience, when he finished, everybody in that room, however many thousands, got up and gave him that very real standing ovation. Frankel survived, not because of what he had been experiencing in the present, but because he thought positively within the spectrum of responsible reactions. And he was therefore able to envision a brighter future and he was able to act to bring it about.